If you're a guest today, we uh, are really glad to have you. I know some students are back from LCU. It's good to have you with us today. And uh, if everyone would fill out the communication card, put that in the offering plate, it comes by later, we would appreciate that. In the month of August, we've been talking about relationships out of the last five chapters of Romans. And the last two weeks, we looked at Romans 12 and our relationship to God, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to the church, and then also to our enemies. And in Romans 13, Paul addresses three more relationships. And I'm not going to spend too much time on these, but let me just mention them. In 13, 1 through 7 is our relationship to the government. And in verse 1, he says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So God has given us the government, and it serves many good purposes. Even bad government is better than no government at all. It is to be obeyed. We are to pay our taxes and be good citizens. And then in verse 8, he talks about a relationship to the law. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And three times in these three verses, Paul tells us to love others, which is the essence of the law. So that's our relationship to the law. And then the next section, verse 11, is our relationship to the coming day. Verse 11 says, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So that's talking, of course, about the day Jesus returns. How should we act in the light of his coming? You know, be prepared, live accordingly, and if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, how would your life change today? And these are all three huge issues, and I'd love to pursue these. But our focus this month has been on relationships within the realm of the church. So we're going to move on to chapter 14 and talk about the relationship between the strong and the weak within the body of Christ. And almost two full chapters is given to this, so it was a very big issue in the church at Rome. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept, which is the theme of this whole two chapters, the word accept, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Don't let disputable matters, in other words, opinions and differences, cause you to quarrel with a brother or sister in Jesus. It's just not worth fighting over. And acceptance is the main theme of this section, and that word will crop up several times in these two chapters. Now, Paul is not teaching. You can believe whatever you want, and anybody can believe whatever they want, and we should accept everything that happens and accept what everyone believes. And he's not saying that. Because there are some basic fundamentals we have to agree upon as brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are also some areas that are just disputable, areas of opinion where we can disagree. Verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now, there's some Christians in Rome that said, we can eat anything, that would be me. And then there were other Christians said, no, we should eat vegetables, and that would be Ellen. And uh, there was a difference of opinion. And Paul says this is a disputable matter that we should not fight over. Now, do you know people who are just very careful about what they eat, and they're healthy, and vegetables, and whole grain, and fruits, and you feel inferior to them? I hate them. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, you might wonder why... Were they arguing over food in the church? You know, you got the broccoli group over here and the chips and Twinkies people over here. And what's the big deal with food? You know, what a silly debate. How can they be so petty to argue over something like that? And I think I would ask, you don't think we have silly arguments today? I know of a church that argued over the Lord's Prayer. Shall we use forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debtors, our debts? Big issue. Some of you remember, you're my age or older, 
debating the morality of hair length. You cannot be a Christian man, especially, and have long hair. Do you, you remember when hair over the ears was, ears was cool? I was cool. Uh, some of you were cool. In fact, we have a picture of a couple of cool guys. Those guys were cool at one time. If you don't know who they are, ask me afterwards. Um, another issue is rock music. Surely a Christian would not listen to rock music back in the 60s. Mowing the lawn on Sunday was a big one. Going to movies. Some churches have split over communion. Do we use one cup or can we use many cups? So let's not be too hard on these eaters and non-eaters in Rome. Church life hasn't changed that much. That picture bugs me. But anyway... Uh, <clears throat> debating non-essentials is nothing new. And what's sad is when these non-essentials cause fights and disputes, which is apparently what was going, happening in Rome. So who in the Dickens are these people in Rome, these eaters and these non-eaters, you know, these veggies and these other people? Um, there's various theories on the two groups, and I think the one that fits best is that the abstainers, who Paul calls the weak, would be Jewish Christians. Now, not all Jewish Christians, but... There were some of them who accepted Jesus, followed Jesus, but still also held to the food laws of their Jewish heritage and felt very strongly about it. You know, what's allowed to eat and what's not. Um, Plus, if you read verse 5, he says, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. There were Jews who held the Sabbath as a special day, but others said, well, there are no special holy days. And in Jewish history... These two, dietary laws and observing the Sabbath, were considered two tests of loyalty to God and to the nation, two marks of covenant fidelity. So you can understand their feelings had been drilled into their conscience for centuries. Now, the rest of the church, the eaters, who Paul calls the strong, would be the Gentile Christians, generally speaking, who don't have that history. They don't have the, you know, that thing drilled into them. And Paul says, what you eat is not essential, whether you eat or don't eat doesn't make a difference in your salvation, and you should not divide over it. So, of course, the question is, what are disputable matters today? I don't think we dispute over food, but what are the areas of opinion that we should not divide over? And as I thought about this, my list just grew and grew and grew, and I'll give you a few things. One would be the view, our views of end times. There are some seminaries and colleges that you have to sign a statement that you are a certain... Uh, eschatological ilk, you know, you have to be a premillennial or something. Some churches will not hire you unless you agree with them. And I think Paul would say that's a debatable issue. Don't divide over that. Clothes that we wear. I I remember walking into a nursing home once, not here, but uh, elsewhere. Two aides were talking about a church, and one lady said, people should be able to tell you're Christian by the clothes you wear. Ah, well, we're supposed to dress modestly, uh, but can I tell if you're a Christian by the way you dress? I shop at Kohl's, and I think there's probably non-Christians that shop at Kohl's, and I'm not sure you can tell the difference. I have known churches that says you cannot be up front unless you wear a suit and tie or a coat and tie. Um, Ellen was told she was half naked one Sunday when she came to church. She wasn't. She looked pretty good, but she wasn't half naked. You know, people just have, people just have a some standards they want to go by. When I was in the church in Robinson, another issue was a cross up front. Okay? Some thought having a cross up front was idolatry and a sin. Of course, guitars and drums in worship was a big issue a few years ago. Organs and pianos in worship were a big issue too, by the way, back in the 1900s. They were controversial. Speaking in tongues, people get dogmatic on both sides, pro-tongues, anti-tongues. Smoking, I have had uh, people in the church t- tell me, I just can't understand how someone can be a Christian and smoke. Um, 
In fact, they'd almost wonder about their salvation. I'd ask, where's that in the Bible? And they would say, well, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You should take care of it and not put nicotine into it. And I'd say, okay, quit putting your carbs and fats and preservatives in your body, and we'll talk about this. Alcohol, Bible's very clear about drunkenness. It's a sin. It's disgusting and destructive. That's a no-brainer. But, you know, the question comes up, can a Christian be a social drinker? And in some churches, you cannot get hired if you don't think drinking a can of beer is a sin. See, these are all issues good people have discussed and sometimes argued over. And so I say, let's not be too hard on the Romans church for their eaters and non-eaters. Now, what makes me really uncomfortable with this text is that the Jews who had the tradition, the Old Testament Bible, the long-time relationship with God, probably much more knowledgeable about God than Gentiles, they would be considered the conservative ones, and Paul calls them weak. Now, I'm not talking politically conservative or theologically conservative. I mean conservative in that stricter in the faith. They had more rules and more restraints. Don't smoke, don't chew, you know, don't go with those that do. You know, don't do this, don't do that. Have some restraints uh, that they abide by. They're very dedicated people. They're good people. Um, they remind me of me. You know, I got some things, that I, some rules I would like to add to the gospel. The Gentiles who are newer to the faith would be the liberals. Now, not, again, not politically liberal or theologically, but liberal in that we're free to eat whatever. So what's odd and what really hits me is the ones most close to God in their tradition, the Jews who've known God longer were the weaker. And the newer ones, the new believers were the stronger. And I found that to be somewhat true today. Sometimes the ones who are in the church the longest are the weakest when it comes to this area. Now, they're not weak in morality or goodness or commitment or even Bible knowledge, but they're weak and they want to add some regulations to the gospel. They want to protect Christ and protect the church with rules, and the rules become almost as important as the word. And so the people, we would think very often, you know, in our church, well, these are the strong Christians. They've been here the longest, and they're solid, and they're faithful, and they're the stricter ones, are sometimes the weak ones. When I went to Bible college, for you college students, there were rules about skirt length of girls and hair length of boys and facial hair. That was for boys, too. Um, alcohol, smoking, dancing, rules about all these things. And I, I have to ask, was my Bible college a weak college according to Paul? Because none of, those, none of those are gospel issues. You know, can you wear a short skirt and be a Christian? That's for girls. Um, we, we are to dress modestly, but is there a rule we should have? Okay, three inches, you know, two inches above the knee, whatever. My rule would be two inches above the ankle. Uh, but should we make a rule, church? No. Parents, Yeah make rules. But many churches, many people want to add rules to the gospel. If you want to be part of us, you know, you'll abide by these. And sometimes they're not even spoken rules. They're just kind of assumed. Uh, that's actually weak in the faith. You're adding to the gospel things that are unnecessary, and those are the things that can divide. Now, one area for me where I would be weak, according to Paul, would be in this area of alcohol and social drinking. And I'm just going to be honest and take a chance that uh, some of you are not going to like what I say, but it bothers me that some of you drink alcohol. And I wish there was some scripture that says you are sinning uh, because something deep inside me just, yeah, that's wrong. You know, the example it says for our young people, the industry it supports and the problems it causes in society. And I could give you all kinds of these reasons why I'm an abstainer and why you should be an abstainer 
And, and I think I can make a real good case, besides the fact that beer just stinks. And, but I cannot, I cannot condemn you from the Bible. I want to, but I can't. So I am weak in this regard. And I want to add a rule to the free gospel of Jesus Christ that all Christians should abstain from alcohol. Well, does this mean then, since we're free, I can do whatever I want? Is that what Paul is saying? Well, Paul would say no, and he gives some guidelines when differences of opinion arise. He's not saying anything goes here, but there are a lot of areas that are opinion and some gray areas, and if two opinions collide and disagree, how should we behave? And he gives us four principles here. One, these opinions should be done to the Lord. Verse 6, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Notice the Jews abstain from certain foods out of love for God. That's part of their worship. The others ate, but they also did that to the Lord in good conscience. If you can drink alcohol to the Lord, so be it. Maybe some can, probably some cannot. Eaters, if you can eat those Twinkies and brats to the Lord, have at it. Non-eaters, you vegetarians, you do your vegetarian to the Lord. Praise God, he's being honored. If you wear a tie on Sunday morning to the Lord, do it. If you don't, you dress in a way that honors him. See, the test of discipleship and opinions starts right here. Is it to his glory, and why are you really doing this? Freedom in Christ is not freedom to do what I want. That's the problem in our nation, by the way. We really don't understand real freedom. But freedom in Christ is freedom to be freed from that old way, that old slavery to sin, that old selfishness, and free to live for him. And if we stopped and thought about everything we do, is this to the Lord, we might change some things. We might live a little differently. If every question is, is this to the Lord? Alcohol, in some cases, can be done to the Lord, but only you can answer that. Teenage drinking, underage drinking, is never, ever, ever to the Lord. You cannot justify it. And many adults that drink do not do it in a way that honors Jesus. To the Lord is the deciding and the unifying factor. Another principle, leave the judging to the judge. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Back in verse 4, he says, who are you to judge God's servant? God has accepted him. Christ has died for him or her. And if you reject someone that God has accepted, you're trading on some dangerous territory. Now, some judging should go on in the church. And I'm going to talk about this when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, do not judge, lest you be judged. And I'm going to talk about that in regard to the homosexual issue. How do we handle that one as believers when he says, do not judge? But we are to judge if things are right or good. We are commanded to discern. We are to judge if something is the best for our discipleship or for our families, whatever, for the body life of the church. The judging he's talking about here is the belittling, the looking down on someone else, a harmful type of judge. Who are you to judge God's servant and look down on them in this area of opinion? Third principle, do not endanger another person's relationship to God. Verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, Paul is Jewish, but he's also a liberal in the sense that it's okay. You're free to eat whatever. But 
If anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. For me, drinking alcohol would be a sin. For you, it might not be. 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ loves. So if you are one of the strong, you know, you know about the freedom in Jesus, you may have to give up some freedoms so as to not cause a weaker brother to stumble. Um, don't eat a pork chop in front of a Jew, I guess would be an application there. My first church, Wayne, Nebraska, there was one guy, he was actually an elder at the time, very devoted believer, and he knew his Bible, and he honestly thought fellowship dinners in the church building were evil, and we should not have food in the house of God. Now, according to Paul, that would be a weakness on his part. He's weak in his conscience. And the dilemma we had as a church, okay, is do we disallow fellowship dinners in the church building because of one objector? If we had a dinner in that building, would it be a stumbling block for him? What would Paul tell us to do? He says the strong should not do things that would cause the weak to stumble. So should the whole church not be able to eat in the building because of one believer's conscience? How far do you go with this text? Do we let the squeakiest wheel, the weakest Christian, determine everything we do? You'd be amazed at how many churches are run by a vocal 2%, the most immature. Well, we better not do that because brother so-and-so, you know, we're going to really be upset and the whole church is paralyzed. We don't do anything. Is that what Paul intends? I don't think so. He certainly did not cave in to everyone's opinion. So we have to take this text along with others, seek some balance and ask, how can we handle this in a wise and loving way? And with that elder and Wayne, we talked about it. We came to an agreement on fellowship dinners and we all grew because of difference of opinion and we got it all worked out and, and it was a good thing. And Another thing, you know, should we make everyone wear ties if someone thinks we ought to wear ties? Obviously, this church, we don't feel that way. Uh, should we tear down a cross if someone thinks we ought not to have the cross up there? How do you decide these things? So, I believe Paul gives us three criteria, three directions we should look at when it comes to deciding on opinions. We need to look up, well, we'll honor God and glorify Him, praise Him. Um, if we cannot honor God in this decision... Or if it will take away from his glory, don't do it. That's first. We need to look out what will be effective in our culture as a witness to reach out. Frankly, if everyone has to wear a suit and tie to worship, that eliminates a whole bunch of people, doesn't it? Because most, a lot of people don't wear a suit and tie anymore. And if no one can drink alcohol, there would be about eight of us left. That might be a little exaggeration. but. And then in... What will build the body, the church, and edify the saints and make us better disciples? And if we use those three criteria, we'll make wise decisions. And then the fourth principle is do nothing selfishly. 15 verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. So often... We'll handle these decisions based on what I prefer and what I like and pleasing me. And that's when you have trouble. Paul says, what about your neighbor? Do nothing out of selfish reasons. Now, billiard ball, the eight ball. Um, I once read that proportionately the surface of the earth is actually smoother than this ball. So the heights of Mount Everest and the Rocky Mountains and all the other mountains, they're huge and impressive to us. And if you drive through them, you know, the earth is full of these big peaks and valleys. 
But from the view of Mars, they're not even noticeable. The Earth is smoother than this ball, proportionately speaking. And I think a lot of differences between Christians is just like that. To us, huge mountains, big obstacles between me and my brother, but from God's perspective, they are nothing. It doesn't matter squat. And we used to live in a world where the church could argue some of these petty things and still survive. We could argue over whether men should have long hair or not. We could argue over guitars being used in worship and worship what you wear as clothes. You know, in the world today, we don't have that luxury. We cannot pursue these moral mouse hunts anymore. The issues facing the church are much bigger, and we've got to stop playing trivial pursuit. For instance, can we please stay out of bed with people we aren't married to? Is a lot bigger issue than whether we wear your tie on Sunday morning or not. And have we considered lately the millions of people and children that are starving or child prostitution? I think that's a bigger issue to God than whether or not you smoke a cigar. I think ripping babies out of wombs and crushing their skull ought to get our attention. And can the Christians of the world agree to stop verbally assassinating each other over political issues? See, maybe my neighbor facing a Christless eternity is more important than whether he has a beer or not. There's just bigger issues, and we got to stop playing trivial pursuit. A lot of opinions are just that. They're opinions and nothing more, and most of them don't matter when you step back and get a big perspective. And when we do these things that Paul lays out, when we do it to the Lord and let the judge do the judging and, and don't endanger other believers and do not, nothing selfishly, if we follow those principles, we'll have what he says in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 15, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, except, there's that word again, one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. What happens when we accept one another? Worship. God is glorified. Worship's not just singing. It's a whole life endeavor. And when we are of one mind and one voice and allow diversity of opinion on disputable matters, God is praised. I love the unity this church has had in the last several years. Our body life, our edification, the unity in spite of some differences, and that is what leads to his glory. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Let's pray. Lord, you accepted us and forgave us. You covered over a whole bunch of our sins. And we live in the shadow of the cross in which you died for us. And may, may that grace and forgiveness and acceptance live in us and through us, especially in this area of disputable matters. They just don't matter in the big picture. And So, Lord, give us your perspective to see a brother, sister, or a neighbor with your eyes. Help us to not judge, but do everything to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.